What are the risks of using antipsychotics in children and adolescents? Are we dooming them to type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, and hypertension, to name a few? Welcome to our special series on children's mental health. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Christoph Carell. Dr. Carell is a research psychiatrist at the Zucker Hillside Hospital, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. He is also director of the Adverse Events Assessment and Prevention Unit and the medical director of the Zucker Hillside Recognition and Prevention Program. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Carell, what do we know about using atypical antipsychotics in children? Well, we know a couple of things. First of all, they are being used in increasing quantities for childhood disorders or presentations that disrupt their functioning. And we also know that the evidence in terms of randomized placebo-controlled trials in children and adolescents is lacking behind the use that clinicians employ in, in their clinical practice. Until very recently, much of the data we have available for antipsychotic use in kids is based on adult data. This is somewhat problematic because obviously children are not just small adults. They have different bodies. They have different brains. Some of the, the neuroreceptor systems that are being targeted with these medications are not fully mature. So there is a little bit of a disconnect, but I'm glad to say that uh, over the last couple of years, there has been an initiative by NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, the FDA, industry, and academia to actually deal with this issue because there was too little data available and there was an increase in prescribing suggesting that there is a need for these kids to get treated when they're psychotic, when they're manic, when they're aggressive. And what has been the result is that now numerous multi-center, double-blind, randomized trials have been conducted. Some of them are already completed. And we now have uh, already one atypical antipsychotic that has received FDA indication for irritability and autism, for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder a couple of weeks back, which is risperidone. And other uh, drugs, other atypical antipsychotics have already completed, uh, studies were completed with them in children and adolescents specifically with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So the, the data that has been presented at posters, as posters at meetings, suggests that yes, in children and adolescents, these agents are helpful for mania, for psychosis, and for aggression, like in adults. Now, in children, the expression of certain disorders early on means that they also have a more refractory, harder-to-treat chronic illness. So some of the response rates are somewhat lower than what we've seen in adults. The, the final thing I want to say about antipsychotics as a response to your first question in children and adolescents is that, like in other areas of medicine, kids seem to be more sensitive to the adverse effects of antipsychotics. And particularly, they have... I summarized that in a paper recently, they have higher rates of sedation and hypersomnolence. They have higher rates of extrapyramidal side effects like Parkinsonian side effects, dystonia, maybe not so much for akathisia, the restlessness in the legs. They have more withdrawal dyskinesia, which means that when you stop the medication, they have an overshooting motor response. They, when they're adolescents, have higher prolactin elevations, which can interfere with sexual functioning and maybe even maturation. And what we'll, I think, discuss a lot and what you 
prefaced in, the, in your question was, they seem also to have a higher rate of weight gain and dyslipidemia and insulin resistance, which is obviously highly crucial for their future functioning and also longevity. At least in my world, it's very unusual for a child or adolescent with these problems to be on one medicine. They're usually on a whole uh, cocktail of different medicine. Does the risk change if we add other drug categories like mood stabilizers or antidepressants to their antipsychotics? That is obviously uh, very important to note that clinical reality is not reflected by monotherapy with a medication, particularly in children and adolescents that have often complex comorbidities and complex chronic severe illness expression. But even in adults, in bipolar disorder, for example, the mean number of medications is about four. In schizophrenia, it's maybe, maybe three. So yes, we have an interaction of these drugs with antipsychotics. And in terms of weight gain and metabolic risk, it seems that adding a mood stabilizer to antipsychotics adds to the risk of sedation. There's more sedation and there's also more weight gain. With Depakote, Divalproex, there may even be more risk of insulin resistance because Divalproex can itself lead to some pre-diabetic stages. Antidepressants, unclear. In some studies, it has been shown that they may actually be salutary, so you, people may have less metabolic abnormalities, but antidepressants are not one class. You have antihistaminic medications like paroxetine or mirtazapine, which can cause weight gain in addition, and you have others where this is less the case. Now, psychostimulants, there the world is, again, a little divided. One study has shown that adding psychostimulants to an antipsychotic does not reduce the weight gain, or at least co-treating, I should say. They weren't all added at the same time. In our analysis, uh, I've been conducting a large-scale study in more than 500 children and adolescents started on antipsychotics. There is a small effect that adding a stimulant or co-treating may reduce a little bit the, the weight gain. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Children's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Christoph Carell. We are discussing using antipsychotics in children. Now, Dr. Krell, I think about risperidone as being the one antipsychotic that is improved in children, but certainly among the newer agents, the most likely to cause prolactin problems. Where does that leave us in real life? It's complicated because risperidone doesn't only cause the most prolactin abnormalities, but also it causes more weight gain relative to other medications than in, in adulthood. So we have a medication that is effective for psychosis, mania, and aggression, but it also has a lot of loading, endocrine load as a side effect, and other EPS extrapyramidal side effects are also higher. So that's why we as clinicians have been exploring lower risk agents. For example, the newest ones are ipiprazole and ziprazidone that cause less weight gain, are less sedating, and also have less risk for, for prolactin abnormalities. Now, we are still looking forward to these drugs being approved by the FDA, and at least for our epiprazole, uh, studies have been presented that this is at least likely to happen in the future. But clinicians uh, that treat children and adolescents are used to treating patients off-label, and even after approval for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, will continue to treat off-label because many of our patients have psychosis NOS, mood disorder NOS, bipolar NOS. They don't fulfill the full criteria, but they clearly need help. So in my opinion, I would always try to start the treatment with a lower risk agent first because we don't know who will respond. And we also know that the differences in efficacy among antipsychotics are pretty 
small, except for clozapine, which is reserved for treatment refractory individuals. So it's relatively small for efficacy, and it's very difficult to predict. But the differences in side effects are pretty large, and they're much better to predict. And as you said in the very beginning, are we dooming people to developing type 2 diabetes and coronary artery disease? We know that too much weight gain, and particularly early on in life, but at any time in life, really is a very bad risk factor for future diabetes, hypertension, and coronary artery disease. And Colton and Mandelscheid just published something, a study last year, where they looked at eight states in the United States and compared people with mental disorders versus the general population. And people with mental disorders die on average 25 years earlier than the general population. Imagine what we would give to live just six months longer when we're sick. This is 25 years. And why is this? Because of coronary artery disease and cerebrovascular disease. And why is that? because mentally ill patients have higher rates between 1.5 to 5 times higher rates of obesity, smoking, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and, and diabetes. So what we need to do is try to keep those risk factors down. Now, when we treat patients that are children and adolescents with potent medications that they really need in order to function better because they're psychotic, they're manic, they're uncontrollably aggressive, we should try to reach the symptom uh, reduction with medications that in the long run have the least likelihood of disabling patients, not being as sedating, not being as anticholinergic or causing EPS because that can reduce cognitive functioning and also having less weight gain, less dyslipidemia and hypertension so that these patients can live longer. So that difference in life expectancy was not due to suicide, which many people might presume. It was due to metabolic consequences often of what we do. This is an excellent point because the relative risk for people with mental disorder to die of suicide is much larger than in the general population. But the absolute risk, how many people actually die of suicide, is relatively small compared to the large number of people who die because of coronary artery disease and they die earlier. Now, we have some data to suggest maybe people with schizophrenia have a lower risk for certain cancers. Maybe this is just because they don't get as old to have these cancers than the general population because they die of heart attack and stroke much earlier. And that is partly due to the illness. They are more disorganized, have poor lifestyle behaviors, but they also receive treatments that can induce weight that can reduce activity levels through EPS or sedation. And since we have agents available that have less of a risk there, we should try those first, I think. None of these medications will treat 100% of patients successfully. Not even our most potent treatment, clozapine, can do that. But at least having a hierarchical, algorithmic approach to start with low risk and then move up on the ladder is, I think, where the field needs to go. Now, if we do find ourselves in a situation in our practice where we're using antipsychotic medications to treat children and adolescents, what can we do to either prevent or at least monitor these sorts of problems? Clearly, you said start with a lower risk antipsychotic, but, but what else can we do in real life? Well, you've mentioned the critical issues here. One is monitoring because these side effects that, that can kill people are not side effects that patients will come up to you about. They have yet to experience a patient who says, well, uh, Dr. Correll, please change my antipsychotic because I have high blood pressure or hyperlipidemia. This is not felt. We need to monitor this both at the beginning of the treatment and ongoing to see can we switch the patient to a lower, lower risk agent if necessary. And then we need to intervene. 
And at every patient who is started on a mood stabilizer or an antipsychotic should have a healthy lifestyle assessment. What do they do in terms of food intake, uh, dietary measures uh, like sugary drinks? What about activity levels? Do they know what's right, what's wrong? And then patients who are started on these agents need to be instructed that their appetite level is likely to increase. So what they've been doing before may not be good enough anymore. They should have multiple meals during the day, but they should be small. They should chew a lot and drink water in between so that they expand their stomachs earlier and have the feedback that they're, that they're not hungry anymore. They should stop all sugary drinks, soda, diet soda, juice. Even though diet soda and water have the same caloric intake, the next meal after the diet soda will actually be larger than after water, most likely because there is uh, an increase in sweetness, which is then perceived by the body as there should be some caloric intake, but it's not there. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Christoph Carell. We have been discussing the dangers and practicalities of using antipsychotic medication in children. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.